0: The passage of scripture that we've been focusing on during Advent is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus.
1: In these last two weeks, we have been trying to be obedient to verse 12 of this chapter that Tom just read from. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember, and that's the key word, Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so what I've tried to do is to help you obey that command. Remember that. Don't ever forget from what you have been saved. Because... If you forget these things, then you will not cherish Christ as a Savior. If you don't cherish Him as a Savior, you don't have Him as a Savior. You see, these aren't just optional things we've been talking about. The urgency of cherishing Christ... You know the words of the Apostle. We know that all things work together for those who cherish God and are called according to his purpose. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it ever entered up into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who cherish him there is henceforth laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not only to me but to all who cherish his appearing let all those who do not cherish the lord be accursed 1st corinthians 16:22 grace to all who cherish the lord jesus these are the words of the lord this is not optional University faculties have the motto, publish or perish. You know what the motto of the Christian church is? Cherish or perish. It's not optional. And therefore, these have been urgent things. An urgent attempt on the part of the preacher to stir you up to feel that from which you've been saved so that you'll cherish Him just like you would if He had pulled you out when you were drowning, which He did. And we've done it by focusing on Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, which have said, 1, we need a Savior because we were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2 We need a Savior because we were captive to an alien power and being led about by the nose, by the the spirit of this age. And number three, verse three, we need a Savior because we were children of wrath and condemned to the eternal torments of hell without a Savior. You can imagine yourself in any crisis this morning that you want... Maybe your imagination would handle contemporary crises better than spiritual ones. You could say, imagine yourself trapped in a French court with a gunman. Or imagine yourself streaming toward the earth in a jet crash with about five minutes left to think about what it will be like to hit with 240 servicemen. Or you might think of yourself frozen for ten hours in a bank of snow like that teenager here in the Twin Cities last weekend. Or you might think of yourself with a Jarvik 7, and everybody knows there's hardly any time. Now, whatever crisis your imagination can handle best, I can say to you on the authority of the Word of God, your condition in that pew right now in this room at this moment is more urgent, more threatening, more terrible without a Savior than anything you can imagine. That's just plain gospel truth. That's our condition without a Savior. The warning has been sounded now. And my prayer is that because of it, God will be pleased to enable you today, right on through the Christmas season, to cherish what comes next in this text. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which He loved us when we were dead through trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and made you sit or raised you up and made you sit with Him in heavenly places that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive. We were captive to an alien power and led about by the spirit of this age. But God delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and made us sit with Christ in the heavenly places. We were children of wrath, doomed to destruction. But God promised us in verse seven, eternal displays of kindness in grace. That's good news, isn't it? Oh, that we would reckon with the reality of God. You may say, I'm dead. No hope for me. I'm captive to so many things you don't know anything about. No hope for me. I'm a child of hell. I'm doomed. I know it. No hope for me. Well, read on. But God. I hope those two words ring in your ears all through this Christmas season so that every obstacle to your joy and your spiritual maturity that looms up in front of you, you will just smash with these words, but God, and ride over them in the power of the Holy Spirit. But God made us alive. But God freed us from Satan. But God gave us an eternal future of kindness. Isn't one of the great Christmas truths, maybe the greatest, the one that comes out in this interchange between the angel and Mary, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And she says, How can this be? I have no husband. And he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For with God... Nothing will be impossible. How can I have a baby? I don't have a husband. And I'm a virgin. Virgins don't have babies. That's right. Mary, now learn the most important lesson in the universe. Reckon with God. Reckon with God. Virgins don't make babies but God. See? Right at the center of the Incarnation are these two words. But God can, did. So here's the way we're going to handle this great text this morning. We're going to put verse 3 over against verse 7. Children of wrath we were, but God promises us an eternal display of grace. And we're going to put verse 2... Over against verse 6, slave to the spirit of this world and to the alien power of Satan. But God delivered us and freed us and put us in heaven beside his son. And we're going to put verse 1 over against verses 5 and 6. We were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 1, but God, verses 5 and 6, made us alive. We'll take them in that order. First, what does God give to you this Christmas? What did He give to you already, I hope, or could give you this very morning through faith in Jesus Christ in the place of condemnation and wrath? You see, according to verse 3, we were all children of wrath, which simply means by nature we were so rebellious against God that it was fitting and suitable for us to go to hell. No injustice, nothing inappropriate, nothing out of step, nothing out of line. It was the way the family goes, to hell. That's what it means to be children of wrath. It's just suitable that we get wrath. And now comes this amazing verse 7 that says, it is God's sworn purpose... "...that His people will experience..." How does it go? "...that He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Let's take that apart. That's just a piling up of good news words. First, the word grace. God aims to be gracious to His people forever and ever. And then, lest we miss the sweetness and the gentleness and the warmth of the word grace... He follows it with, with that little phrase, in kindness. You see, I think it's grace when I spank my sons. But that's not what he's talking about here. That happens in this age. That's grace. But in heaven, there are no spankings. It's all kindness. If you had a choice today uh, to pick anybody in the world, anybody in the universe the benefits of whose kindness you could enjoy for the rest of your life, who would it be? Why, it would be God. Of course. And that's what this text offers you. I mean, there's one of your wishes. If I could have any wish I wanted, surely it would be that God would show me kindness according to everything he's got to show kindness with. It would be God, and this text says it's yours. It's an amazing thing. How this text piles up words. Let's take another one. You might run out of ideas of how God would show you kindness, right? You could think of a thousand maybe. You could write a thousand ideas down if you took the time. A Christmas list, a thousand long, how God might show you kindness. You could come up with a thousand. Then you run out of ideas. Well, God will never run out of ideas. And that's why he puts the word riches in front of the word grace, isn't it? Riches of grace. And lest we fail in our imagination to know how rich God is, He puts the word, depending on what version you have, immeasurable or surpassing or incomparable in front of the word riches. So we won't miss the point. Now, I ask you, how rich is God? Because He's going to spend all that on you. How rich is He? Well, I read in the... Uh, Marketplace section of the Tribune a couple of weeks ago that uh, Queen Elizabeth is worth more in her personal estate than uh, any billionaire in America. She's worth about $4 billion. Now, if you got a letter in the mail from Queen Elizabeth that said that she has taken an oath by the blood of Prince Charles that she intends to use all of her money to show you kindness as long as you live, I think you'd be impressed. (laughs) You'd be affected by that. It would change some things in your life. Change the way you get up in the morning, go to bed at night, what you do. Well, now, how does the wealth of Queen Elizabeth compare to the wealth of God? Well, I'll tell you how. It compares like a grain of sand compares to the Sahara Desert. That's how it compares. This is an amazing verse. This is an amazing verse offered to you this morning, made out to the people of God who just trust Christ. That's not all. There's one more piece. Suppose Queen Elizabeth does this for you. Well, she might do it for ten or 30, or 80 years for the kids, and then it's over. Then what good is that principal going to do? Suppose you've been living off the interest at about two to four million dollars a year or whatever it would be, and then it's gone, and the principal's sitting there, and you're gone. Well, this text can improve on that too, because it says... In the coming ages, He is going to show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, how long is an age? Anybody know how long an age is? Second question. How many are coming? Well, that's easy. They're all coming. They're all coming. Everything that's in the future is coming. Now, why did Paul say it like this? He said it like this to to get across this simple, unimaginable point. God Almighty will never run out of resources and never run out of ideas for how to make you happy. When I was a kid, heaven did not impress me. Turned me off. He had that experience. Streets of gold. Singing. I didn't like to sing when I was 10. I was bad. I should have liked to sing. But I didn't. So I was not impressed. In fact, eternity in heaven was frightening to me. Almost not quite as frightening as hell. But frightening. That's boring. Eternal boredom is frightening. <laughs> well... That was just because I didn't know God. I didn't know that God had written this verse 7. I missed this verse somewhere. That He was rich, richer than Queen Elizabeth, and that He commits Himself to spend everything He owns on me to make me happy in all the ages that are coming. And He'll never run out of creativity in fact, I think the meaning of eternity is this. When God runs out of ideas, fresh ideas, how to make me happy, eternity is over. So, don't be afraid about eternal boredom. It's out of the question. If God is God, and as rich as God is. Well, that's the meaning of Christmas, I think. Namely, That Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners so that God would have a people who cherish the riches of His grace in kindness forever and ever. Second, what is God going to give us in the place of captivity to Satan? Verse 2 says that we were following the course of this world. That is, we were right in step with the times. We were in tune with the world. We were... Uh, walking with the spirit of the age and Satan had free access to us. We were sons of disobedience and the, the spirit of this age was at work within us and we were slaves. He was blinding us. He was controlling us. It was hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. Just as hopeless as a virgin trying to have a son. But God freed us And it says in verse 6, raised us up with Him and made us sit with Him free in the heavenly places. Well, now, what does that mean? You're all right there in the pew, aren't you? Are you sitting in heaven? Are you sitting in the pew? What does He mean that we're sitting in heaven? Well, I'll ask an easier question. What did Tony Bennett mean when about 25 years ago, He sang, I left my heart in San Francisco. Well, we know what he meant. He meant that San Francisco has a hold on his affections. San Francisco is always pulling him back. San Francisco governs his tastes. He may look like he's in Chicago, but he doesn't go to Chicago restaurants if he can He goes to San Francisco restaurants. The people he wants to be like aren't the citizens of the the Windy City. They're citizens of of San Francisco. So we know what it means that we were taken out of the world and, and, and put in heaven. It's simple. When you were converted, God made you homesick for heaven. He, he took your heart out of the world where it was all enslaved by Satan and the spirit of this world, and He just freed you from it. And He took you up and put that heart with Him in heaven. In fact, Colossians 3.3 3 says, we died with Christ and our life is hid with Christ in God. God's home. You feel homesick today? You ought to feel homesick for God. God is your home now that you're saved. That's what it means to get saved. You're free from the spirit of this world and you're at home in heaven and there's homesickness and now heaven governs our tastes and heaven has a hold on our affections and heaven is the thing that is infiltrating all through our life and tugging us back again and again up to be with Jesus. It's like you were captured by satan and drug off to his enemy territory and then brainwashed and in the brainwashing process you were made to believe you were a a citizen of, of satan's place and then god in his mercy sends some intelligence troops into the enemy territory finds you one night and uses some kind of shock technique and awakens you from your stupor and all of a sudden you realize i'm not home And you start to feel homesick. That's what conversion is. Homesick for God. Way back there, the king in in the homeland. And then God says, now don't come home yet. Don't come home yet. You just stay there and live like an alien and an exile with different values. And uh, when it's time for you to come home, you bring as many with you as you can. So... The second meaning of Christmas is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners so that we would be free. I, I can't imagine why anybody wants to be a jellyfish in the currents of the sea of secularism. It's kind of floating around if the TV goes this way or movies go this way or the spirit of age goes this way. You just kind of jellyfish it through your life. When well, you can be a dolphin with God cutting across the currents of this age according to the kingdom right toward the shores of heaven. Why would anybody choose to be a jellyfish in the world when they can be a dolphin with God? You don't want to be a jellyfish. So, Christmas means freedom. Freedom. <coughs> From the world and it's winds that just blow all over the place. And this year something's in, and next year something's in. You buy it at the store this year, and you look out of it next year, and you got pile in your closet. You know, it's just ridiculous not to be free. Jellyfish costumes all over the place. Third and finally, what did God give us, and what could He give you this morning? In the place of deadness, verse 1. Well, the answer is verse 4 and 5. He made us alive. I pictured it like this. God was walking through a graveyard and uh, John Piper's grave was open and it stunk. And God walked by, smelled it. And instead of doing what would be fitting, suitable, appropriate, namely turning his face away and holding his nose, he looked at his son and he said, I want that mess alive. Will you die so he can be alive? And the son said, yes. And that's how I got saved. That's how you got saved. Or may get saved. That's good news. That's a great God of grace. So Let's sum it up. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were captive to an alien power, but God freed us, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and put our heart at home in heaven and made us dolphins in this age. And third, we were doomed, condemned, children of wrath, And God made out a will in verse seven that says, by the blood of my son, I will for the sake of my people spend an eternity and all my riches in grace, showing kindness to them to make them maximally happy forever and ever. I don't know how to prove on these verses. What can you say? I can say one other thing. You may be here today saying, look, I'm on the outside looking in. You keep talking about God's people being beneficiaries of these things. I don't think I'm part of that. And I'd like to know how to get in because that sounds good. Well, I'll tell you. It's right here in verse 8. God will tell you, and I'll just echo it. Verse 8 says, for by grace we have been saved. What's the next phrase? Through faith. All right, now there's the answer. It's not real clear necessarily what that means, but there's the answer this morning. It's the answer for believers how to enjoy more of this life and freedom and hope. And it's the answer for unbelievers who may be in this church right now who want to know how to get on the inside of these promises. The answer is faith. And so let me just take two or three minutes to tell you what that means. Here's what it means. You spend the rest of your life starting this morning looking to Jesus as the center focal point of your life and trusting two things when you look at Him. First, you trust Him that His death was super sufficient to cover every sin you have ever committed and ever will commit. That's number one. just trust Him because it is that sufficient. And second, and this is the part that is so little understood, You trust Him that He, in fact, did sufficiently pay to guarantee all the promises of God. Which means just trusting the promises of God. They were bought by Jesus. They were sealed by Jesus when He died. Now, let me illustrate what that means. Trusting the promises of God. Suppose you get tempted this Christmas to steal, shoplift for a gift, and maybe you justify it that way. What do you do when that temptation comes? Here's what you do. You trust the promise that says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in Christ Jesus. If you steal, you don't believe that promise. Do you see how faith works? you see what it means to live by faith? You believe the promise, my God will supply all your needs. And you fight temptation with faith. Or you might be tempted to lie here at the end and get yourself out of a jam at work. So you get a little more time off or lying is a little more likely than stealing Maybe. Well, what do you do when the temptation comes to lie, to get a little more money, a little more vacation, just avoid a little embarrassment, to color the truth a little? Well, you trust. You trust the promise from Psalm 84:11 that says, "God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. You believe that promise? You won't lie. Call the death of Jesus inadequate to purchase that promise and make it real? Or finally, suppose, and this hits a little closer home, suppose that you're tempted to return evil for evil. She said something bad about me. I'll say something bad about her. Returning evil for evil, holding a grudge, vengeance. What do you do when you're tempted to return evil for evil or hold a grudge or take vengeance? Vengeance. You trust the promise that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Hands off! You trust Him. You trust the promise. And you forgive and you return good for evil. Do you see what it means to walk by faith? To live by faith? We are saved by grace through faith in His death to cover all our sins, and in His promises to free us from all sin. So I beseech you, I urge you this morning, I beg of you, trust Christ. Trust Him with your family. Trust Him with your relationships. Trust Him with your job. Trust Him with your money. Trust Him with your health. Trust Him with your future right into eternity, and it'll change everything. He's an amazing God of grace.